Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. There is this existential shift that the hemophilia community is currently going through. Like, wow, this thing is coming. We also just don't know what it really means in the long run, but it certainly feels like a threat in a weird way. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's episode, Andrew and I had the pleasure to welcome in studio Patrick James Lynch, a true renaissance man of many hats. We had a double interview. Yes, we interviewed each other. Now, if I were to fully divulge into all that is Patrick James Lynch, the intro would be longer than the episode. So in brief, Patrick James Lynch is one of the world's most influential hemophilia patient leaders. The man's also a filmmaker, actor, producer, media guy, keynote speaker. He's the founder of Bloodstream Media, which is a chronic disease podcast network, and Believe Limited, which is a unique storytelling agency that creates entertainment to affect change. I'm telling you, this man's a, a freaking specimen. Advocates love him, activists want to be him, and I unapologetically may have developed a little man crush throughout getting to know him. Anyway, this episode's on the longer side of what we usually publish here, but I assure you that if you've got the time, it's worth the listen. And as an added bonus, a recurring theme of Steve Gutenberg, along with mentions of the golden child, the phrase penis breath from E.T., and Wilford Brimley, We'll assure all you Gen Xers that the 80s are alive and well right here on my show. So please, without further ado, enjoy this double interview with Patrick James Lynch. Yeah, when I started my podcast, it wasn't, the word wasn't podcast right. back then. It was the brilliance of internet radio. Right, right. No one had, I mean, the iPod sure. existed. Yeah. And the terminology of podcasting had been invented in like 2005 or something. So when did you start? What year are we in? I was in April of 07. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's early. The Wayback Machine. Yes, sir. We had uh, people on dial-up. Okay. Back when there was still dial-up, broadband uh-huh. was barely a real boy. We were still 3G. Mm-hmm. In the city, you couldn't stream anything. Netflix was still... I think Blockbuster was still around. Oh, yes, it was. With their CDs and DVDs of everything. So... Oh, Andrew's here. Hi, Andrew. (laughs) That was me as the dial-up internet. You'll be doing the police academy for impressions throughout the show. Yeah, Mike. Was it Michael? Oh, I don't know his name. I I just put it. I just had it on the other day. That's why it's top of mind. Oh my God! All hail Steve Gutenberg. 
sir. <laughs> Why not? I did a movie with that guy, actually. Which one? Yeah. Tell well, me Short Circuit and you win the internet. Oh, my God. I would love to. Johnny Five was my hero growing up. But it, it was not that. It's a movie that still has not come out. I did it 10 years what? ago, so I've lost hope. But okay. it's called At the Top of the Pyramid. So At the Top of the Pyramid Check with it Steve out on Gutenberg. IMDb, everybody. You'll never be able to see it otherwise. Steve Gutenberg with his number five Alive pod coming out next month. No, I'm totally kidding. Everybody's got a pod. Hillary Clinton's coming out with a podcast. Everyone's got the 700,000. How do you differentiate? So I accidentally differentiated by being the first. Right. But you never knew you're the first. How did that happen? How did you have that vision? It was honestly, I, I was actually just handed the show. Hmm. Because back in internet radio land, one of my earliest mentors, when I moved from I'm not dying anymore, what do I do? Right. Into the advertising industry to what do I do? I ran across an incredible woman named Selma Schimmel. Okay. Selma was like a five-time cancer survivor. She was one of the first young adults in the 80s to create all sorts of noise with a bunch of other early breakfast club 20-somethings in the 80s. Hmm. And she launched the first nonprofit for young adults called Vital Options. Okay. And Vital Options was a terrestrial radio station that plopped itself down at every single cancer conference around the world. Hmm. She had this massive like tour of all this old school terrestrial Howard Stern level equipment. Right, right. She schlepped around the country wow. and broadcasted live because that's all you had back then. Yeah. Live, you missed it, you're done. That's it. Thursday Friends, you missed it, you're done. <laughs> that's, right. that's it. You got to wait 30 years to watch Friends again. <laughs> so, so she was offered the opportunity in very early days. It was a startup called Now Live. They're okay. now dead. Ah. But Now Live was a internet radio like live blog feed that's what they call themselves uh-huh, uh-huh. and selma i love telling the story because it's re- the real origin of how all this nonsense started she was approached by now live to do a digital version of her show and her board at the time was a little old school and not open to change and terrestrial was working and their funding was there sure so she said to me matt you should do this like, do what? Like, you're an NPR junkie. You have a good voice. You're theater trained. Just get behind a microphone, have the show. So now live became the first platform in like, I think I signed with them in January of 07, which is around the time that I started the whole website and it just befell me. Hmm. So there was no short supply of eager people to want to be on a radio show with me. But I wasn't like a personality back then. I was just like this guy that wanted to figure out what advocacy meant yeah yeah so on may 27 2007 episode one of the stupid cancer show started and i had no idea what i was doing and i wound up booking like the first 75 shows in two weeks wow because there was such a hunger did you have anybody helping you no wow it was just me i have a photo and it's me in like this crazy room with stacked up like four computers and a ad hoc microphone and i had like a, a fake soundboard yeah it was like it was insane did you even know how to use that stuff i it was like you matrixed it yeah, i just yeah. kind of like figured out what to do like with nine hands <laughs> but that was the first radio show for cancer and healthcare. oh wow ever wow you don't know your first no you don't until someone tells you right and then i was live every monday from eight to nine eastern I mean, again, live. Like, it didn't live in the archives. It's gone from the internet. No one knows where these first two seasons were until we went to a pre-tape. And over the course of, I think, 13, Android, 13 years, 14 years, Mm -hmm. I 
interview thousands of people and like 450 shows and we had i think upwards of 4.8 million collective listens wow but the running joke with that i just i want to get to the show the running joke with the 4.8 million listens is that over the course of 450 shows that means that either 4.8 million people listen to every show or one person listened to every show 4.8 million times i have to imagine if it was the latter by now, you would have found out about it. No, it was that my dad. Oh, it was okay. my dad. That makes a lot of sense then. Thank you, Mayor Lou, for listening to every show. <laughs> 4.8 million. <laughs> so that's, that's what brought me to what I'm doing now because I, I stepped down from stupid cancer and like this angry voice or, you know, boisterous attitude about calling shit out. Yeah. Uh, the authenticity, the rawness that we developed this this international brand for was gone now. Mm. So I had met Andrew. I'd known Andrew a while, and we were brainstorming. And I said, "Quit everything in your life and work for me." <laughs> Working well with me, yeah. He's still here. Keeps showing up. Yeah, we we co-founded a company. Yes. So Offscript Media is, I would say, the chapter two of the Stupid Cancer Show. But now it's the Stupid Everything Show. Did you know when you were transitioning away from Stupid Cancer that some version of this was going to be chapter two? Not a clue. Hmm. I was in such a uh, strategic dystopia hmm. as to what do I do? How do I peel myself away the Velcro uh, uh, after 13 years of launching my baby? Yeah. I knew it was time to, to leave. I knew it was time to find the next thing, but I, I, needed, it. I needed a sabbatical. Yeah. 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 And it was, it was ultimately one of my, my uh, colleagues who worked in pharma that had asked me at an event I was at, said, what happened to the show? I said, I, I think it's... I think it's over. Hmm. And he said, why? <laughs> I don't work there anymore. He's like, just do your own show, but don't just do a show for you. Try to build a company around your voice. So over the course of a year and change, Andrew and I came up with this company around, he would say, the unfair advantage that is my hostility. The unfair advantage of your... Well, I'm actually kind of curious about that. So I guess it's worth mentioning, you and I have only met each other about 20 minutes ago. But we have an amazing mutual friend. So yes, we do. So props to Nick, A lot Nick of Hudson. Sh and shared history from Nick Hudson and, and, and who he is and what he brings to the table. But I was really taken by uh, some of the ways that you are described. A cancer rebel, a status quo agitator. And <laughs> these are things that really resonate with me. Uh, I'm just curious, where did that come from? Did you always know that this kind of uh, unfair advantage of sorts was going to be your wheelhouse? What do they say? Falling with style? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you tend to. I was just at an. I was like me in stage combat. I was never very graceful, but no. I could fall with style. That's it. It's Buzz Lightyear every day. It, <laughs> Buzz Lightyear. My first Buzz Lightyear reference ever in we got broadcasting. Friends. We got Buzz Lightyear. I think we're doing really Steve well. Steve Gutenberg. Steve Gutenberg. Number five alive. This is a great this show. Is a so retro far. show. Totally retro. I was thinking of launching an entirely separate podcast called Gen X Therapy okay. because we don't have a voice. Like it's all millennials and boomers. Huh. Even though we're okay, Karen. Now you saw that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. We there's like we're just angsty Breakfast right. Club survivors, and 30 years later, we're like, don't we have a thing? Huh. You know, no one understands if I say uh, the Golden Child. Do you know what that is? Like as a concept? No, like Eddie Murphy's lost, forgotten, amazing movie between Beverly oh. Hills Cop and Trading Places. No, See, I don't. that's a Gen X reference. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So I just I'm dating myself, but at the same time, anyway, that, that might be the litmus test. Yeah, if you know the Golden the Child. The Golden Child is a pretty good candidate. Yeah, you know the it. The litmus test. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I want the knife. 
<laughs> oh my god Patrick's I'm writing it down Patrick we assure you we're not making this up we're not making, right? it's a real movie so it was at, t- at the top of the pyramid it just never came out <laughs> right <laughs> Steve Gutenberg <laughs> is he the golden child also I wonder if he's on Twitter we'll tag him and see if he shows up that's a good idea yeah like what, what is it Beetlejuice right you say his name three times he shows up that's right he's a genetic reference Beetlejuice we got now that, that one, one I know yes, because it's on Broadway he's back that's true and you can't it's Keaton. Right. And he's got a green face and a really cool suit. You see yeah. it every Halloween. So yeah. it kind of brings it back every exactly. year. So the whole point of uh, having a good copywriter <laughs> is all the fancy stuff they say about you in the media. So I've always been, my dad would say, they broke the mold. I will own that. And I've always been upset when I have no control over something. Mm. And that's just my personality. I'm inherently Woody Allen neurotic. And that also contributes to my need for applause. And I'm a concert pianist, and I demand attention. Oh, wow. So That's cool. You mix all that bullion bass into kind of some kind of weird Jewish gumbo, and that's me. I'm so interested now to hear you play the piano, knowing a little bit of who you are and where you come from. I just feel like the way you hit the keys must be unique. It was. I mean, I still play. I was on my way to film school. I was going to huh. be a film composer. I was going to study with Hans Zimmer. Oh my God! Yeah, that was my that was my twenties, my my college years. Was and then what happened? Uh, then life gets in the way. Yeah, was it man plans, God laughs? Yep. Yeah, so I had brain cancer. Yeah, I'm misdiagnosed for six months. This was six months before I was going to graduate and go to USC to study film composition. I couldn't play anymore. Um, I lost my left hand. Uh, all the fine motor coordination was gone. Oh, so as wow. a pianist and a lefty. You know, kind of. Suck. Are you a lefty? I'm a lefty. Oh, I'm a lefty too. See, all right, good Ge- job, Nick Hudson. Wait, are you a Gemini? Tell me, you're a Gemini. I'm not. I'm a Sagittarius. Ah, all right, well, I will. You can stay. Thank you. So yeah, with that whole career tossed out, uh, it took me five years to rehabilitate myself. My twenties totally sucked. I like to say that uh, I, I entered the shit happens store at 21, and I spent my twenties there. Mm. And then by the time I hit 30, then I started to come out and figure out my life. When you were getting misdiagnosed, what was what were the diagnoses that you were getting? Carpal tunnel, Epstein-Barr meningitis, uh, early MS, ischemic stroke, uh, aneurysm, and then the flu. And what tipped the scales that finally, oh, brain cancer, what, 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 how, what was the difference maker? My symptoms were really, really weird because most contra pianists that get brain cancer <laughs> don't lose their left hand. Hmm. So you talk about uh, the odd early detection. My early detection was my left hand doesn't arpeggiate anymore yeah yeah and then no one took me seriously because you're 21 it's all in your head yes it is indeed it is yeah Yeah. yeah. irony is not without a sense of irony no it's you know and there's so many so in my as a guy with hemophilia in my wheelhouse bleeding disorders uh hemophilia is not too hard to diagnose if if you know what you're looking for but women with either von willebrand disease and though it rare sometimes hemophilia on average I believe it's 14 years from the time of first identifiable symptom to a diagnosis. 14 years. My and goodness. like these diagnosis odysseys are just so painful to think like you have brain cancer. You've got a severe bleeding disorder. These are bad enough. But to have to go through such an odyssey to just identify the thing, never mind yep. manage it, find out how to treat it, what your unique circumstances are going to, what wrenches they're going to throw into it. Right. It's so painful. And I've found that we seem to make so little progress and maybe that's where the disrupting the status quo kind of resonates with me because there's sometimes a little bit too much self-satisfaction at these healthcare conferences and patient meetings and we want to be empowered and we want to feel good 
but there's a lot of work to do. And sometimes that does not feel urgently recognized um, to the degree to which it needs to be. I was very, I say lucky and with quote, air quotes, that I happened to have started to come out of my my funk and my my illness and my side effects and my late effects around the time when the cancer survivorship conversation was just starting. Mm. And we're going to be doing uh, hopefully a whole, whole series on the, the history of survivorship, which is itself these days a, it's interesting. a bit of a jaded word because when are you a survivor, when do you beat it, like... Right. You want the finish line, unlike like hemophilia, you, you kind of look like luggage, right. you live with the shit forever. Yeah. We're looking for the finish line. Good point. And this idea of the human experience of cancer exceeds biology. Hmm. And if you start to treat the person as an age-appropriate individual with mental health and quality of life service, especially young people who it's hard enough to be 22 yeah. <laughs> in yeah. general fertility, dating, isolation, fear, anxiety, insurance, careers, like all the stuff that's just hard enough lop on cancer. So this idea of survivorship meant let's focus on the person first and the disease second. It was a radical idea, flew Hmm. in the face of just allopathic biological science. But because I was brought in very early on as this nascent conversation like Selma Schimmel was part of this. Other incredible people were were, were the birth Mm. of what this idea was. And they got the government to pass a bill that that mandated rehabilitation from cancer because less people were dying right away. Huh. So this idea of your quality of life is tantamount to your quality of care was a new idea that I was walked in the door on. So the stupid cancer show... Hmm from a media perspective was refreshing because you could talk about people yes. and not cancer yes. and stories mattered more because you could now say, well, I'm glad I didn't die, but now I'm broke right. or I'm glad I didn't die, but I lost my, my husband left me or mm. I, I, I don't, I metastatic and I don't know what my future is going to be, but you know, I need a job. And how important, like you said, you, you're looking for a finish line, but then even when you get to that finish line, you might get there broke. You might get there without the job you used to have or right. the trajectory that you were on. So it's not even as though you're done. And how important, like you said, you're looking for a finish line, but then even when you get there, you're not in the same position that you were in before the diagnosis. Maybe you're broke. Maybe you have to change the career trajectory that you were on, concertpianist going to film school. So the need for connection. Did not you say concertpianist? To- Penis? Pianist. No, I got all the enunciation and I did I've my warm ups this morning. Than concert penis. Well, with, with your attitude, I imagine you would be. So have I. <laughs> you know what, Matt? You are you are a pianist, Brett. <laughs> That's an ET reference. Well done. Thank you. Gen Thank X. You. I love that one too. Um, but how important it is to have community. And if all you are focused on is the the medical biological disease state and not the person, you're missing the community. You're missing the need for psychosocial support. You're missing the follow up needs of a person who has beaten or survived cancer but is still a human in the world that has to deal with their life circumstances i'll tell you this the the rationale behind not just it's a nice to have to focus on the person but this idea of quality of life through cancer was transformed because they started to call cancer a chronic condition big difference big difference from death sentence to life sentence out there and as soon as that vernacular hit then the trends and the research and the psychosocial support and the social works and the nurses, cancer was a lifestyle. And they took a lot mm. of cues 
from chronic disease communities like type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes or or um, you know um, muscular dystrophy sure. or cerebral palsy or cystic fibrosis we start to look at how do you endure with a quality of life you deserve and even though we are looking for the finish line and these rare disease communities have to live with this quality of life is what matters most to your outcome yes. and making sure that you can have decisions and opportunities to live your life on your terms despite the shit that you're dealing with that whole philosophical concept in the rare disease world led to this normalization in cancer of it's about you first what led to your knowing it was time to move on from stupid cancer this mission the importance of it i'm sure that has not diminished any what let you know that you though had to move on the the top line is when I started it, I was newly married, no kids, uh, some decent cash from the career I had left in advertising, and a bit of a nothing to lose scenario. Mm. And I was privileged. I had the opportunity to just dive in and not need a salary and not need the basics. And I lived off huge risk of everything I'd built with my wife for that long. And after 13 years and things start to creak and hurt <laughs> children showed up yeah and things got very different and running a charity is very very hard hmm. and i don't say that in some kind of whiny way you have to run it like a business i ran it like an agency and when you're a founder you have nothing but your own glass ceiling to run into hmm. and i felt that i had peaked hmm. at a certain point the tipping point, though, was I had been in Los Angeles, your hometown. Yes, sir. For three consecutive weekends in a row okay. from New York. So I would travel to L.A., spend two days there, come home. Next week, same thing, rinse, repeat. And by the third weekend, one was a fundraiser, one was for a, a social event, and one was for a media thing. Okay. And I had to go because I was the CEO. And sure. Facing the voice of stupid cancer. Right. And I just got so exasperated. And I was on a roof deck in Santa Monica with a friend of mine. And I said to her, I don't think I can do this anymore. Mm. And all she needed to say to me was exactly what I needed to hear, which was, you're going to be fine. <laughs> if it was my wife or my dad, they would have said something different. Mm. But that was the moment I realized I'm going to figure it out. And if you can read, why don't you read the little quote? Oh, my laptop's over there. Something. Sometimes you need a plan and you need to trust and hope and see what happens. And I'm not a mantra kind of guy. I'm a fairly grounded individual. <laughs> and it, it stuck with me. Yeah. I'm going to be fine. Yeah. I'm going to trust and put my faith in, you know, the, uh, the inevitable. It's amazing sometimes how those are such simple little quiet moments. It wasn't someone giving you some profound, never heard before thought that came from a book long lost to history. Hmm. It was just you're going to be fine. It was one human being saying to another, I, I know now is stressful, but as a human, I can tell you, mm -hmm. you're going to be fine. It's just amazing to me. I was with a friend who was having a bit of an existential uh, crisis a couple days ago. And um, we were talking about that very thing, how sometimes it's those trim tram moments that you could never predict, couldn't know to look for. You just have to stay receptive to. And when they, and then this is the important part. And when they strike, you have to listen. So when your friend says you're going to be fine and there's that little thing inside of you that goes, she's right. It's going to be okay. You have to listen to that and not 
push it away. And I, I know for me as a founder and as a CEO and as a go-getter and a risk tolerant person. And an entrepreneur. It is easy to keep going and it, it is easy to just plow ahead. And, you know, part of my story, I'm doing what I'm doing in part. Actually, someone said this about their work to me recently and I was like, I do that too. Part of my work is grief management. I lost a brother to hemophilia, to a head bleed. And I had no idea what to do with that. My world was shattered. And what I've done is use that pain and my skills to just try to help as many other people in his circumstances not have that happen. It's that simple. But if I don't take the time, and I don't always, to listen to what my needs are, eventually either a panic attack or an ocular migraine or some other kind of body. I have ocular migraines. Hey, stress, yes, right? Fabulous stuff. So it's like my body now has started to get to the point in life where it's reminding me, hey, you're not superhuman. You've needed to like find this inner strength that is- You're also not 20 year old anymore. Correct, correct. So I'm intrigued by people who reach a point with something they've built, believe in, have such, you know, you used the word Velcro earlier, which I was like, yeah, I get that. And I'm just interested in those, pe in the moments where something changes. Back with our guest after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Patrick, I'm learning so much. Oh, good. Not just on this show, and not just because you're dashingly handsome and making me feel horribly inferior. Matthew, yes. say more. <laughs> Working with Nord, finding out that all young adult cancers are a rare disease and that we belong to Nord was like another club hmm. you don't want to be a part of. But <laughs> in learning that there's such a, it's like a social firewall between cancer and everything else hmm. because there may be no finish line but even in the sense that there could be help me understand do you want one because hmm. you're born into this tribe there's a level of pride yes in this tribe why would you not want to have the shit you have if there was an opportunity not to have it and i get it i totally understand like, let's say you were born a little person mm -hmm. and you spent your whole life as a little person. Yeah. And then one day in your 40s, they find a cure that yeah. can make you tall. Yeah. 
Like I'm making sci-fi, right? You're not though. There is actually, I have a friend who has achondroplasia and I was just talking with him about a company who's working on a gene therapy product that's pretty far along in the pipeline that is, uh, that can in theory make a little person a little bit taller. And I was talking with him because gene therapy is also on the precipice in, in hemophilia. So when you talk about you're a part of this club, there's a pride. There is this existential shift that the hemophilia community is currently going through. Like, wow, this thing is coming. We also just don't know what it really means in the long run, but it certainly feels like a threat in a weird way. Right. And this guy, his whole perspective was my life is built like I am a little person. And you're saying like, maybe this could make me six or seven inches taller or not me, but a, a baby but it's not necessarily going to change any of the health outcomes. And I'm not going to be a normal sized person, but now you're going to take me out of this little person's uh, uh, identity that I have. And something he also pointed out to me, which I thought was unique. Um, it's funny you bring up this example. The little people of America, for example, not a patient advocacy group. It's a social group. Right. So they don't primarily identify as having a medical or clinical condition that needs treatment or management. And yet science is working on something that will help someone with achondroplasia get a little bit taller. So now there's this, what does that mean? And it's right. like the deepest, most existential kind of question I think you can be asking yourself. I mean, are they creating a supply market for no demand? Yes, great question. Great question. And I know there are some who are skeptical about the the way it is being marketed and who is it being marketed to because so many of these individuals are born to average-sized parents. And for average-sized parents, the idea that their young little fetus may not have full height, but maybe just maybe we can add four, five, six, seven inches. In his perspective, they're baiting on fear. Well, this is timely too, because there was recently, I'm going to botch the gist of it, but there was a married couple, both little people, and they wanted to have a baby who was going to be guaranteed to be a little person. Mm -hmm. So this idea of gene augmentation where they would do, you know, uh, IUI or ICSI and they would they would find the sperms or the embryos that carry the gene markers for that condition right and the doctor refused because it was a bioethics issue wow yeah that we're I mean I think it's great that we're having to deal with this it's science doesn't necessarily always consider the long-term bioethical possibilities so at a certain point, it's up to advocates to step up, and maybe that advocate's a doctor, maybe it's a patient, maybe it's a parent, but it needs to be someone willing to take some risk to say the uncomfortable thing. I mean, the loss of your brother, obviously, you know, I, I've lost my brother-in-law to cancer. I'm sorry. And for me, advocacy means making shit suck less for the next me. There you go. But in the space of bereavement, what have you learned or discovered in your conversations in the, in the rare disease market that is bereavement the same across the board? How do you get through it? If you're a caregiver, a surviving spouse, a sibling, what are the resources you turn to to get through that? Yeah, I've found that so many people that I uh, work with or see often who are advocates, colleagues in bleeding disorders, there's some story in their background. They had a, a parent who contracted HIV from contaminated blood product in the 80s, or they have uh, a cousin who was born in... Iran and died at five because there was no access to treatment. 75% of the world with hemophilia still doesn't have regular access. And half of all people. Wait, 75%? Like most of the world. Of 8 billion people have hemophilia? 75% uh, of the world with hemophilia. Oh, okay. Doesn't have access to the life-sustaining medication. Oh, that's a better statistic, but still a terrible statistic. <laughs> Correct, yeah. Once again, all things are relative. Yes. Um, but 
there's medication that enables somebody like me who would otherwise likely be dead before 10 to live a full life. And yet I go to different places in the world to do documentary film work for the World Federation of Hemophilia and other organizations where we see the grim realities of this, these things. And what I just find is all that strife, it just motivates the people who are there to do more. And that's the same here too in the US. You know, it's the parents who have lost a child, it's the kid who's lost a parent, and grief management through activism to me makes a lot of sense. And I guess where I personally am kind of trying to find my way forward and why I'm curious about your journey too is because at some point there, there's the next chapter, right? Like something has to shift. Bereavement and grief is a process. It does have a finish line. It doesn't mean like we were talking about earlier, it doesn't mean everything's done and great. You have a new life circumstance to move forward with. But the grieving process does have an end point. I do believe that. And I and I am kind of just trying to figure out what does that mean for me and my mission and my work going forward if I'm starting to 12 years later accept that my brother is gone. So in the, again, I, I love being an armchair guy in these communities. We're learning so much. And it's, it's a huge awakening coming from the cancer world, being a cancer survivor and being woke to this whole reality of, you know, was it 2000 rare diseases that live under Nord or something like that? Yeah. It's insane yeah, it's to even number. look at that number. But this idea of mental health and post-traumatic stress, there is no post-traumatic stress. It's just enduring traumatic stress. You're living every day with, am I going to die tomorrow? Does that foster this idea of make every day count? Or is it just like another, oh, FedEx didn't deliver my package and I'm just normally pissed? I, you know, I feel FedEx like FedEx not me, a sponsor. <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like for me, it depends on the day, if I'm being honest. There are, there are times where um, I do have an, uh, this little bit of me that's, for a long time, I struggled to see my future. I really couldn't see past a certain age, even though I knew I was coming up in a different generation. I, maybe it was the fact that, I mean, I was literally born in 1985. I contracted hepatitis C from contaminated blood product. I was just one of the 20% of people that naturally cleared it. Good for me. So I'm right there on the precipice of like the hemophilia before and after. And I don't know how much of that carries into my story in life. I don't know how much my brother's death specifically kind of carries into it. But sometimes I feel like there is nothing else I can or should be doing because this is too important. And I'm just in this unique position in the world to try to make a difference right here. And there are other times it feels as though it's never going to get better. There's just always going to be pain and suffering. I can't look at another person with a knee the size of a basketball who's living in Nepal. I just want to run away and work at an aquarium and talk to a fish named Steve. And... I think both of those perspectives are fine. They're fine. Like it's all real, but it changes. And I've, I've noticed for me in the 12, 13 years, it changes. So I've just tried to not get too stuck either in my positivity, mission-based, let's go for it, or in the more depressive, I've got to just turn away from it all. It's too much. It's, those are all acute feelings I have found. By the way, if you do work in an aquarium with a fish named Steve, make sure that fish's last name is Gutenberg. I would have to after this conversation. Yes. You are left without choice. <laughs> you are left without choice. There's nothing I'd rather hear in the context of a healthcare conversation <laughs> than you are left without choice. Well, when it comes to Steve Gutenberg. Well, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, you got to you gotta go with, I mean, it was it was Police Academy, Three Men and the Baby, and uh, Short Circuit. Short Circuit, that was yeah. his. That was it. That's his, uh, yeah, his apex right there, Short Circuit. <laughs> that's it, apex, done. Hey, if I could have one career opportunity. Until the like, movie comes out that you're in that, with him. That is true, actually. It'll peak again. He's got quite an accent in that movie, too. Really? If you have a chance to watch it just for Steve Gutenberg's accent, I would say go for it. Okay. <laughs> I think my favorite you can't get away with that anymore moment from Short Circuit is Fisher Stevens, a white guy 
playing an Indian American. Yeah, that wouldn't fly. That's not going to work in the remake. No. That friends, is- we're, we're we're forgetting Cocoon. Oh right, oh, he was in yeah, Cocoon. Yeah, that's a big oversight. Uh, here's to Hume Cronin and Wilford Brimley. Yeah. Well, he has had a career. He has he's made it work for himself. Mm-hmm. He just came back recently because someone thought he. What was that on Twitter? Wilf- Wilford Brimley, you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, this, this was during the Super Bowl. The coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, many people on Twitter uh, asked one another, wait a minute, is that the diabetes guy? Because and- Wilfred Brimley did a series of, uh, of, uh, of promotional spots and in which he called the condition diabetes, diabetes. And, uh, and Wilfred Brimley has a Twitter account. Apparently so. was able to chime in and get lots of attention when he said, no, I'm the diabetes guy. Hey, During the Super Bowl. Good for you, Wilford. He saw the opportunity, he struck, and now we're talking about it. We're going to bring the full circle. That was his Oreo moment. Uh, <laughs> a, 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 a structural statement here. Uh, there's, there's, there's an interesting background to the conversation that's happening right here. It's the merging of two communities. I appreciate that. And, you know, I appreciate, too, as you said earlier, Matthew, about cancer being thought of as a chronic disease and how that was such a game changer. I think about, too, with rare disease, what's the difference between a rare disease and a chronic disease? And within hemophilia, we talk a lot about what it means to be a rare disease, and that's important. But more recently, I've been thinking about we should maybe a little more often think about the chronic disease nature of this and how much of a wider net that casts when we talk about I was just in D.C. last week for advocacy work. And. Again, rare diseases, there's many of them. In the, in the aggregate, one in 10 people have them. So in totality, it's a huge group. But chronic disease is even bigger. And if we could find more ways to build coalition, build community through podcasting, through events, through whatever means necessary, the coalitions that we could build are tremendous. I had a wonderful, uh, I, I created the first cancer peer matching app in the world that lasted all of a year and a half because you can't build that in the nonprofit space without Bill Gates on your board of directors. Sure, yeah. It's called Instapeer. And the idea was hmm. basically Tinder for cancer before that was anything else. No dating, of course, but just ending that isolation. And the tagline for Instapeer was, it's not about what you have. It's about what you have in common. That's great. You should adopt that for something else now. Well, that's the show. That's that, the tagline for this show? show why not? I agree. Let's just steal it. I think you should. It's yours. Well, it's mine. I can yeah, steal it you back. can steal from yourself. I'm reclaiming my own reclamation. That's what it's called. It's called reclaiming. You can't steal from yourself. It's called reclaiming. <laughs> so, where would you consider like a managed disease, managed chronic condition? Because you are living in a, a bit of a stasis right now, or you're a ticking time bomb. I'm living in a stasis. So, hemophilia in the United States right now is a very manageable disease disorder by and large. We do have one huge asterisk to that, which is those who develop this immunological response that we refer to as inhibitors, which essentially renders the medication that's available ineffective. That occurs in 25 to 30% of people with hemophilia. That happened to me from ages 7 to 14. I experienced very frequent bleeding episodes, missed a lot of school, was laid up on the couch, on steroids, overeating, the whole thing. That's still a very big problem. There's been some uh, medical advancements. There's a product that came out at the end of 2018, a new uh, mechanism of action, does not have that same immune response. So we're seeing some real big changes in a way that we haven't in about two decades. So within the U.S. and now again with pres- with gene therapy on the precipice, there's it's a managed disease or disorder. But if, if people who are not going to hemophilia treatment centers, if they're not actually tracking what's going on in their body, um, the way in which hemophilia can sneakily creep up on you, it can be devastating because biologically, this is something that wants you dead. 
Um, my brother is an unfortunate example of we we are now in a state where we're very healthy by and large. And you know, I'm running around. I have but a you very look active great. Life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you look mean? Great. You're sick. You're sad. You smile all the time. It's the invisibleness. <laughs> uh, I know, and it drives me nuts. I do sometimes just wish I had a tattoo across the head and. Because yeah, I'm very thankful that my disease doesn't necessarily, you know, greet people before I do. But there are other times where I really do wish it would, if I'm just being honest. But so by and large, it's a very controlled and well managed disease state. But my brother, he just kind of forgot he had hemophilia while he was in college, and he fell off of his proactive prophylaxis regimen for taking medication. He sustained a minor head bump, something that we would all just shrug off. He went to bed. That was it. Wow. So the devastating possibility is still there. And I do, going back to sometimes there's a little too much emphasis on uh, health and how well we're doing and empowerment and this bright future, all important. But if we lose sight of the critical nature of this thing in favor of some sense of invincibility, then we put people like my brother at risk. And that's why I showed up because I started looking after he died at, well, what happened? And I realized he never identified with having hemophilia. We got a mom who's a nurse, took good care of him. He didn't care about sports, so he wasn't pushing his physical boundaries. He didn't get that immune response that I did, which certainly reminded me of what I had. So when he went to college, it was far too easy to be like, I don't brush my teeth as often. I'm not really doing my laundry too much, and I don't take my medication. Well, you can survive with the first two, at least for a while. You might have trouble dating, but you can get by. Hmm. The third one, huge vulnerability, and he's not uncommon in that way. So it's very strange, actually, the amount we're learning from studies to how uh, only about half of the identified patients with hemophilia in the United States, and these are the identified ones, are going to one of the 70 hemophilia treatment centers across the country. That's a problem. There's a reason they exist. There's a reason these comprehensive specialized care models exist, and there's all sorts of studies that can point to the reasons that you should be going to them. But when people are falling through the cracks, the potential devastation is just heartbreaking, and it's avoidable. I have a brother who is a type 1 diabetic. Hmm. And particularly during college, I found myself worrying about him a great deal. Yeah. And one thing that you're talking about that's very intriguing to me, he's, he's doing very well, by the way. But one, one of the things that, that intrigues me is this notion of the value of identifying as somebody who has this condition mm-hmm. as opposed to looking past it. Mm-hmm. And the importance of that, the medical importance of that. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I talk about the word identity a lot lot when I do programs in bleeding disorders because I think it's a word that culturally, you know, I associate it with like fights over who's going to use what bathroom. And we use the word identity in ways that sort of devalue it somehow. Whereas to me, that's how I emotionally, psychologically understand my place in the world. So if my identity is not stable, How am I operating day to day? What's driving my behaviors? What's driving my thinking? How well am I sleeping? So I've kind of, in the same way that when I started creating web series and podcasts and being like, companies, sponsor this. It's important for hemophilia. I feel like the word identity is something that we've kind of let just trickle away. And I'm like, no, no, no. We got to bring that right to the forefront. We got to throw entertainment and identity need to be used a lot more because this one engages people. And this one is ultimately what's most important. Their identity. Identity, not their diagnosis. The diagnosis is a part of who they are. Their identity is what matters. It goes back to that whole people conversation that we started this with. Two things that are interesting is is in oncology, we call it compliance and adherence. Yep. I don't know if, if the language is the same. Yeah. And we found years ago that teens with cancer were the least compliant same. because they just want to live their lives mm-hmm. and they don't want to be bothered by this. And it's a distraction from their 
identity growing up into a space that may not be normalized, you know, right. because they're different and they can't associate with their friends anymore and they're feeling more mature because of this. And they were able to figure out how to increase compliance and adherence in teens and, and early adolescents with cancer through gamification. Yes. And there was a wonderful program called Remission. It was like Doom. Remember Doom? Oh, yeah. It was like a MMR ultimate. <sighs> Doom used to scare the heck and out And you me. would you would mm. kill and shoot cancer cells in your bloodstream surfing like Fantastic Voyage. Oh, that's fun. And it actually clinically improved. And now teen cancer being more blood disorder like ALL, uh, it's, I'm not going to say it's better, like, like where Sunshine and Roses, it's still terrible. Of course, yeah. But we're starting to see huge shifts in, again, identity but that word itself in cancer is very polarizing oh really because it has to become your identity but at the same time you don't want to be associated with it in the social world right people still hide it it's not a shame anymore but if you're just starting to date and then someone looks up your instagram history and you start to see bald pictures this idea of of um your digital footprint mm -hmm. when you would identify with it when you're sharing your photos about this then you're going on a job interview and even though they shouldn't judge mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. you go look back mm -hmm. whereas if you have this invisible disease you don't maybe have that physical video photo looking footprint out there so this idea of i'm not a survivor i'm a thriver i'm a fighter i'm a warrior or i'm a nothing right if there's mm -hmm. so many different sects of how people want to reconcile this way that they are perceived by themselves in the outside world that no one's really solved that issue. No, it's it's complicated and a lot of great points in there. And I think the thing that, that comes back for me, the critical nature of understanding identity for its the, the medical kind of bottom line. So getting out of all the cultural societal pieces of it I, the only piece that to me feels imperative is that as an individual, if you don't want to post on Instagram, if you don't want to, totally, that's your choice. I 100% understand that. What I cannot wrap my mind around, though, is if you are denying it within your own two feet, your own humanity, because you have to take care of that thing. I don't care if you don't want to talk about it. You have to take care of it. You can't ignore it. That's different. Ignoring it is different than not broadcasting it or being all too public about it as long as you are treating it because we have this conversation a lot in bleeding disorders about advocacy and activism and education and there are kids who love to do the school reports and love to be out in front and i'm all about that because from my chair identity is everything and when i see someone who's like look i got a tattoo that says like hemophilia on it it's like cool did you do all the like appropriate tattoo stuff great yeah good man because that tells me you're identifying with you're not going to forget you have hemophilia it is written on your arm i think that is so important is that dangerous to get a tattoo with hemophilia? Well, as a guy with eight myself, oh. I will say no. You're still here. I'm still here. Yeah, no. Uh, the, the short answer is no, and then the longer answer is talk to your doctor before <laughs> making any decisions about your own. No, <laughs> whatever that disclaimer is. No, the very I mean, Carlos Mencia of it's, you. Thank you. I will take that as a compliment. Where did that guy go? I don't know where that guy. I went. have no idea. Actually, I feel like the last time I heard his name, it was in some sort of like joke stealing uh, kerfuffle. Didn't that's he have some right, sort of something right. like that? Someone was stealing his jokes. So, so what's been your perspective? I mean, I look, I look tangentially across the last twenty-five years, and yes, there's progress. Way more people live. Early detection is a real thing now. 
cure is whatever it is going to be. You define it. Right. But the quality of your life is how you should be defining your shopping in that shit happens store, whether mm. there's a finish line or not. I'm 25 years out and don't look under my hood. You know, mm. it's literally a gift that keeps on giving and you have to just figure out, all right, it's what I got. Yeah. I'm on these medicines. I'll never be off them like that. That's just, I, it's a good problem to have. Yes. Yes. I, you know, I feel very healthy. I feel very fortunate as an individual patient and I take care of myself and I pay attention to the things that need to be, you know, you mentioned mental health a couple of times. That's the piece for me, as I probably alluded to mentioning panic attacks and ocular migraines and hives and all the rest. That's been the piece I've had to catch up on. And I don't think I'm alone in that at all. Um, my, my hemophilia related problems in a very kind of X's and O's kind of way are limited these days. I'm very thankful for that. You know, the worst of my experience was seven to 14. And then unfortunately what happened to my brother when he was 18 and I was 21, but now going on 35, I've been fortunate for a while now to be living quite healthily. But when I see the wide range of experiences from people in this country to all around the world, we're a long way off from hemophilia ever being any form of the word cured. We might talk about the curative properties that, I mean, there's a gene therapy drug that may be approved this year for hemophilia, which is radical to me. And for those- Are that, you, is it for you? Like, is it something that could improve your conditions? Yes, in theory. I'll wrap this up with two wonderful quotes. The first one is Yogi Berra. I got a yogi story too. Yes. Uh, if life were easy, everyone would do it. Mm. And Obama said progress is not a straight line. The moral arc of the universe, right? That's the yes. MLK quote. And and I, I remind myself of the great people who have said these things before me too. And it's like, I'm not special in that regard. I may think I'm special in hemophilia and I got to do the work I'm doing because no one else will do it. Maybe. But I'm not special in the broad sense of the word. Other people have fought this fight before and sometimes it's helpful to remember what they have. It's like what your friend said to you, you're going to be okay. Well, I, I, I love the idea that we can bring the stupid cancer, and I'm just going to say the stupid hemophilia yes. world together, united in our commonalities. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I think what you're doing is fantastic. I mean, we need to connect these different communities. There is so much more we have in common than there is that separates us. And if people like you and I continue to push these initiatives i do believe others will continue to follow suit and the future for people living with rare and chronic diseases is very bright as a result onward and upward my friends keep tom and carry on that's all for today folks if you like the show be sure to subscribe leave a review follow us on social and tell all your friends to listen out of patience with matthew zachary is a product of offscript media our executive producer is matthew zachary our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.